Dr. Ladon Eshkaveri, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So you are a, um, a PhD in physiology and biophysics, a nurse anesthesiologist, and you've done research in animal models. You are recently retired as a professor from Georgetown Medical Center, and uh, you've you've done a lot of work with ketamine. In fact, I believe you're the, the co-founder and CEO of Avesta Ketamine. Yes, um, that's correct. Yeah, so that's incredible, and it's such an interesting field. And I believe you're serving the residents of, of Washington, D.C., Virginia, and I think there's one other location. It's like three locations. Yes, we're in the... Um... Uh, the D.C. metropolitan area. So we do have clinics in Washington, D.C., uh, McLean, Virginia, and Bethesda, Maryland, uh, quite near the uh, National Institute of Health. Oh, wow. Well, and that, that's um, that's a great area. I mean, that's where I'm from originally. And and yeah, yeah, I love I love visiting there. And um, so, uh, yeah, tell me about how did you get involved with ketamine? Yeah, you know, so um, for many years, actually uh, 25 years to be exact, uh, I taught the um, all of the anesthetic drugs uh, to our graduate students at Georgetown University. And uh, it was, I would say, about a decade, maybe a dozen years ago or so, uh, that as I was putting my lectures together and updating them annually, uh, I started seeing more and more uh, the research results of the uh, effects of ketamine as an antidepressant. And I think it was an inadvertent finding uh, when people, when researchers were, were looking at it as a good pain modality, what they found was that it also helped with depression and anxiety. And so uh, right around that time, I had a colleague who was also very interested in uh, helping patients with ketamine for mood disorders. And so she and I got together and um, we uh, opened the clinic. Uh, and soon thereafter, um, COVID came along. And maybe a couple of years after that, COVID came along and we, uh, she decided to take the clinic in a different, that clinic in a different direction. So I actually, um, at that point, started Avesta Ketamine and Wellness. And um uh, started out with a pain management uh, practice, doing a lot of pain management and mood disorders, and then shifted more to mood, although we still do some pain management as well. Yeah, something really uh, interesting about ketamine is that it works for both pain management and for a variety of mood disorders. And, um, you know, some people might say like, oh, are those related? Are they somehow... You know, it, it does seem like if something works for depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, you start seeing all these things that that maybe it also works for chronic pain and, and maybe neuropathic pain. Um, how, is there an explanation for that crossover of why ketamine would, would work for both things? Is it by the same mechanism or different mechanisms? You know, it's a, that's a very interesting question. And, and the short answer is we don't know. Uh, but the longer answer, um, just understanding neuroscience, is that they do share a lot of common pathways in the brain, uh, especially the modulating pathways in the periaqueductal gray, which is your own brain's ability to modulate pain and also address and crosstalk with the amygdala for you know where we have fear conditioning and some of those uh, behaviors as well. So we do know that chronic pain patients um, have similar uh, misfiring, if you will, in the brain, as do um, patients with depression and anxiety. We just don't, you know, it hasn't been completely elucidated exactly where those connections are. Uh, but I'll set an example for you, which is what I used to tell my students was, you know, people, for example, with chronic pain um, issues, uh, over time develop, uh, can can actually develop personality disorders, believe it or not. And they score differently on some, um, uh, some tests that we do for uh, personality disorders. And then once you can address that chronic pain and the chronic, chronic pain goes away slowly over time, whether that's, you know, with injections, surgery, ketamine, what we find is that once we retest those same individuals and the chronic pain has been resolved, they actually start to score more and more towards the normal 
personality again. So we do know that there are some changes that occur in the brain and it's not in people's heads. It actually is physiologic changes that occur in the brain. And so, yes, there is crosstalk and they do um, they do uh, tend to share pathways, if you will. Yeah. And it makes sense that somebody with chronic pain, especially untreated chronic pain or poorly treated, might develop a, a personality disorder because it's torture, it's trauma. And and we know that trauma can, can lead to a personality disorder. So uh, yeah, definitely chronic pain is real and, and people suffer with it. And sometimes they have to suffer with also people telling them it's in their head or they shouldn't get a certain kind of treatment. But there's a variety of chronic pain syndromes caused by all different kinds of things. And people really do suffer with, with these kinds of, of, of uh, medical conditions. Yeah, absolutely. You are 100% correct. And we see patients all the time that tell us exactly what you just alluded to, that a lot of their providers don't really believe uh, that they have chronic pain because there is no um, kind of like mental illness. There's no test. You know, there's no you can't get an x-ray that says, yes, there is a tumor here or there is stenosis here or, you know, there is a clogged artery here. Because there's no test, because it's not visible necessarily, uh, a lot of, unfortunately, providers also don't necessarily believe uh, when patients tell them that they have chronic pain because they can't find the reason why. Why is it that the central nervous system is misfiring? And if there's no reason, then it must be in your head, uh, which can be frustrating and actually in my opinion, make the chronic pain worse. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and in a, a similar situation, there, there's patients I've been working with in the, in the last few years uh, who are dealing with protracted withdrawal from uh, discontinuing benzodiazepines. And in some cases, I think that, that you might even call that a, a, a pain syndrome. You know, people that develop akathisia and, and other issues, you know, they often describe it as pain, but but it's not pain in any certain area. It's kind of like a maybe pain in their head and their groin area or just pain inside that they can't really describe where it is exactly, but but it's pain. And um, I even had one patient that the husband was panicking. He said, we need to find something for her pain. No one will treat her pain because when they went to the hospital, there wasn't a back or neck injury. It, it was just pain. And she would tell them the story. You know, she went to a hospital. They took her off benzos too quickly and now she's suffering and, um, you know, it, it's pain, but pain that they refuse to treat because, you know, they can't, like you said, they can't do an x-ray or an MRI and show where is the pain coming from. Yeah, there is a lot of misunderstanding around pain and pain management. And I think that's why um, those of us who are educators kind of almost at the front lines of teaching the future providers um, to take pain seriously, to understand the pathways, to understand that um, these are there are changes in the central nervous system that we can't pinpoint and say this is exactly why. But just because you don't know the why doesn't mean that it isn't happening. And so I think I think that is some something I took very seriously as an educator, teaching uh, our future providers that. Um, you know, pain is real. And, you know, unfortunately, I'm sure you remember, I think we're about the same age, but in the 80s and 90s, we were like, oh, pain, the fifth vital sign being undertreated, right? And then yeah. we overshot it with all these opioids. And now we're almost like, I feel like the pendulum went all the way back to zero instead of <laughs> landing somewhere in the middle where we say, yes, there is pain. Uh, it is real. It is happening, even if we don't see it. Um, and yes, opioids aren't great long term, but what else can we do? Um, you know, and the first the first step in what else can we do is first acknowledge, acknowledge and, and let the patients know that you hear them, you see them. It is real. We believe you. We we hear you. Now let's think through how to how to manage it. Uh, and I think that's the difficulty. And I think pain management physicians and providers in general uh, do a wonderful job. Um, and I think when, uh, you know, uh, people can't figure out exactly where their pain is coming from, they start shopping it around because, you know, there are those who don't necessarily uh, believe that they're having chronic pain. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so one great thing about using ketamine for mood disorders and for pain is that um, 
I, I've, you know, when you, when, and you, you teach pharmacology or you, you were teaching pharmacology. And when you look at the, um, you know, the, this FDA approved literature that comes with all these drugs and there's pages and pages of adverse effects, adverse reactions and side effects. And, um, and I'm sure, you know, you tell your students, you know, learn every single one of these. If you prescribe a drug, you better know what it's going to do to your patient or what it could do. And it's overwhelming to, to learn all of that for every single drug. Um, when I first looked at the, um, the information for Ketalar, you know, the, I guess the original approved ketamine in 1950, uh, I, I thought that it was cut short. I'm like, where's the full version? I'm, I must be looking at like an abbreviated version. Where's all the, the adverse effects that can happen? And because it's like two pages or something like that, it's very short. Um, although if you look at Spervato, you know, which is S-ketamine, which is re related, I don't know if the drug is that much more dangerous or if uh, there's a different, or maybe they've like had to document it differently, but there is more stuff in, in that that one about, you know, potential adverse reactions. So, yeah, what do you think about that? I know ketamine, though, is very safe relative to a lot of other drugs, though. Yeah, absolutely. You uh, bring up a really great point, and that is uh, what, what we term here in Washington, and I know you know this term very well, bureaucracy. You know, I think back in the 50s uh, and 60s when we were um, doing research on ketamine and then when it was finally approved in, I think, 1970, um, the package insert on any drug that we took was um, maybe a page, page and a half, two pages. Now, I think, um, to your point, something like Spravato, which is literally just the S enantiomer of ketamine, um, now has, you know, pages and pages of adverse effects. And I think it's because... Um, you know, of the lit litigious nature of our society, per uh, perhaps, and that, you know, the FDA feels responsible to talk about every single adverse effect that could occur, even if it occurred in one um, patient, and even if that was, you know, something that um, was really not even an untoward effect, but just a an effect that they weren't expecting or and you know, I don't, I don't want to dismiss it. I think there is a lot of legitimacy to showing, you know, adverse effects, to um, talking through what are some allergic reactions, adverse reactions. Uh, but I do, to your point, believe that it's gone a little bit overboard in terms of um, any drug, but in particular with Spravato. Um, but you're, you asked about the safety of ketamine, and I'll tell you. I think ketamine, when provided in a clinical setting uh, where the patient is monitored, uh, it's the appropriate patient to receive ketamine, um, I do believe it to be a very safe drug. Uh, it has minimal uh, effect on the central respiratory systems, and that's why uh, it is such a safe uh, anesthetic drug, at least. Uh, compared to all of our anesthetic drugs, it maintains um, the uh, CO2 response to um, to oxygen uh, in the respiratory system and to carbon dioxide. And so, you know, it, it does tend to be very safe. Of course, it has side effects. You know, the, it has dissociative effects, uh, which some people believe are the actual good effects of it on uh, mood disorders. Um, and then one of the biggest ones we know and we see are its activation at the uh, chemoreceptor trigger zone uh, which is nausea and vomiting. Uh, and so those are, I would say, are the two major. And then some of the minor side effects are it does um, it does activate the sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight. So it does increase blood pressure uh, and heart rate. Um, but I have to tell you in my anesthesia practice, um, since the mid nineties, I have used ketamine in patients and I've never had a patient that had an adverse effect in terms of blood pressure um, or heart rate when it comes to, to ketamine. And we, we used to use pretty hefty doses back then. Uh, and now the doses that we use for mood disorders and even for pain management, you know, we're using um, smaller doses and rather than pushing the medication like we do in anesthesia, uh, we're doing it over time, uh, which does make a, a huge difference on reducing a lot of those side effects. Um, so I think that's one of the advantages of doing it like we do in our clinic in the IV method, because it is so easily titratable. You know, if you, if the patient says, you know, I'm starting to feel nauseous, we can always slow it down. Um, or if the blood pressure shoots way up for whatever reason, we can always stop it, then restart it. 
um, as opposed to something like Spravato, which then it makes sense that it would have a bigger, you know, package insert because once you instill the medication in the nostril, there's not much you can do about it. You know, it's yeah. already been instilled and you can't really titrate it. Um, so ketamine is quite safe, but again, done in a controlled clinical setting. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think another big deal is that, um, you know, the, the danger of a lot of these medications, you know, like the, what happens to people with the benzodiazepines and the uh, traditional antidepressants and, and other drugs is a lot of these drugs are made to be taken every day, you know, for long term. Well, benzo should not be taken long term. Um, that's a big mistake that a lot of doctors made with them. Uh, but, you know, like if you get Prozac, um, the doctor says, take it every day and in a, maybe in a month you'll feel better. And and the patient says, well, how long do I take it for? Well, we'll, we'll recheck in a year, you know, basically forever. So, um, but with ketamine, as far as I'm aware, um, most clinics seem to be doing like a series of sessions, maybe like six sessions and over a period of a, a, maybe a couple of weeks or a few weeks. And then when you're done with that, you're you're done. Like, so you're not taking ketamine every day for, for a year or 10 years or 30 years or whatever. So that seems to, that would probably contribute, I think, to, to safety. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now I'll tell you, uh, you know, we do, um, at least in our clinic, uh, we have found that uh, once patients respond to that series of six or eight that you alluded to, um, sometimes older patients, they're not as neuroplastic, so they might need a seventh or eighth. But generally, to your point, after the first six, once patients start to tell us that they feel more functional, uh, feel like they're less anxious, better mood, we actually, in our clinic, um, uh, taper them off slowly. So we don't just do six and say, okay, goodbye, you're done. Uh, we do um, we do we do talk to patients about okay now you've presumably uh, grown some new neurons or at least some new synapses and connections which is what we understand at least in animal models so now how do we keep these going right and so I think that's one of the things that is really important is you know not just doing the six and saying okay bye you're done. Um, and really tapering patients off slowly and safely. So what do I mean by that? I mean, um, maybe have the patient, so if they've been coming at a cadence of twice a week, for example, have them come back maybe once a week for a couple of more weeks. And then from there, we go to monthly, uh, keep the patient up monthly for a couple of months, maybe three months, and then from there, go to boosters as needed. But I'll tell you one of the most important things that I think we um, providers uh, and clinics uh, really forget is, and maybe maybe I don't because I have that um, you know Chinese medicine training, is that you really do have to treat the whole patient and you have to concern yourself with all of the patient. So, and what I mean by that is once we get the patients to treatment number six and they do very well and they're they're feeling better and more functional. We start talking about okay, you have these new neurons. Now we're gonna maintain, we're gonna take you off, taper you off slowly. In the meantime, here is what you can do: you can start to take um, some omega threes, some B vitamins, or please make sure that you eat foods of every color, and that'll honestly do the trick. I don't know if um, you know if telling patients to take vitamins makes that much a difference as it does to say, hey, make sure that you get fruits, vegetables meats. And yes, once in a while, if you have a feel-good food that you like, go for it. But really um, trying to talk to patients about their diet. And then honestly, one of the most important things as a physiologist is moving your body, um, exercise. So incorporating, <clears throat> excuse me, some exercise um, every day, whether it's just walking a block or two, um, and then making it two to three blocks, and then four or five blocks. Or, you know, if you're in a very hot climate or a cold climate, um, just going to your local mall and walking around maybe for 15, 20 minutes, just seeing other people, uh, just being outside amongst people or nature, all of those things really do contribute to a patient's well-being and maintaining those new neurons that they've grown. So I think um, this six and done is a little bit of a misnomer because Ketamine is like any other drug. You know, if you take it for a short amount of time, 
you stop taking it and you go back to your old system of thinking, oh, and therapy, we'll, we'll, we'll talk yeah. about that. But if you go back to your old system of thinking or doing those, those neurons are just going to shrink right back. So in order to maintain those connections, I think it's really important to talk to the patient on how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then that brings up something I wanted to ask you about. Um, so when we talk about, you know, growth of, of neurons, and, and I think, you know, they call it neurogenesis. And so you have those, those little uh, spindly tree-like things, the, um, the dendrites. And so you those dendrites reach out and, and this is a really incredible thing about the brain is that, you know, maybe we have like 10 or a hundred billion neurons, you know, there's a certain amount of neurons that we can kind of conceive, like, you know, we have less, we have less neurons than, than like Elon Musk has dollars, you know, so it's like a certain amount of neurons, but the incredible thing is like each of those neurons can connect to many, many other neurons. You know, we're not like computers where it's binary. It's not like one connects to two or whatever. Um, every neuron connects to like, like tons of them, you know, so maybe there's like trillions and trillions of connections, you know, so when you think of connections rather than neurons, it's like unbelievable how complex our brains are, like way more complex than, than probably any any computer. Um, but uh, the thing about like dendritic growth is, is that I've heard people also say, say that that that's also like how you develop negative habits and addictions and bad things. And just for example, recently I I prescribed a low dose ketamine, like a sublingual ketamine, to a patient, and and it's helping her a lot. And I said, oh, by the way, you might be getting some dendritic growth, so you know, enforce some good habits. You know, think happy thoughts. You know, um, you know, because you know we don't want to go down a negative path when we're. So I think therapy comes in there. Is that you want to do some positive things with that growth? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think uh, one of the most important aspects of ketamine is therapy. And really the way I, I talk to the patients is, you know, really what we're, what I want you to do is start using your learning, how to use your new brain. You know, now we're, we're growing a new brain, if you will. And our brains are changing constantly, right? We're turning over, turning over cells. We're having new, new cell death, new cell growth. And now that we're really pushing that growth forward in a positive manner and, and showing you that there is another way of looking at things. Now, what you need to do is keep keep propagating that and, and building even newer connections uh, and really learning how to be more resilient, even against your own self and your own thinking, because a lot of patients tend to ruminate more on the negative than the positive. And to your point that carrying that positivity and, and connecting with a therapist who is ketamine informed is one of the most important things that a patient can do to maintain those new neurons. So exercise, diet, and therapy 100% are, I think, the tripods that really help kind of navigate, uh, help the patient navigate the new brain, if you will, and really anchor it down uh, so that they can be more resilient against their own thinking, if you will, as they go forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I like how you mentioned the omega-3 uh, fatty acids, you know, like you can get those fish oil capsules and those are, you know, great for your brain, for your heart, for, for treating pain. And, and I, and I was taking like one a day, I get this big bottle from Costco. And then I heard this guy on a podcast um, that he, he said, um, like whatever dosage he mentioned for taking for depression, it was like double like what I was taking. So I'm like, well, it's just fish oil. Maybe I should just take two a day. Um, but yeah, th those are really good, you know, I, I think for the brain, for supporting brain health. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if you're, um, if you can't take those large capsules or pills, honestly, just adding some fish to your diet. Um, you know, salmon is, is very high content in omega threes. I know, uh, I don't know how many people like sardines, no one in my family eats them, but me, but sardines have a lot of omega threes. Um, so I think just adding some fish, um, seafood to your diet, um, that'll really, uh, add some omega threes. And then, you know, some of the, um, some of the more simpler foods like uh, chia seeds, you know, chia seeds uh, are packed with omega-3s. They're a good source of fiber. They're pretty tasteless. So, you know, if you're averse to um, to fish, uh, switch it. Or if you're vegan, um, swapping in some chia seeds would also do the trick. Um, so those are some of the things that we talk to our patients about in terms of maintaining uh, their new brain, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. It's like getting a new car. So you got to take care of it. That's right. That's so, right. Yeah. So that's great. So um, 
Now, if somebody comes to you with uh, depression and they take, you know, Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Lexapro, um, and, you know, they've been taking it for like 10 years, like, I would assume that they don't just suddenly stop it. I mean, it wouldn't be safe or a good idea to stop those. So that, can they just keep taking their medication straight through? Yeah, you know, we advise them to not change too many things. You know, it's like too many variables in a research study. You know, if you're coming yeah. to us and you've been on Prozac and Lexapro, um, and those are are obviously not working for you, that's why you're coming for ketamine. Then what we usually advise patients, the first, the first thing we do is we collaborate, we reach out and collaborate with the patient's pr uh, prescriber, whoever that is. Sometimes it's a psychiatrist, sometimes it's a mental health nurse practitioner, other times it's their primary care provider. So we usually reach out and um, let, the, let them know that we are adding a new medication, we're starting to do ketamine therapy. And then if the patient's goal is to get off the medications, with which a lot of times I'll be honest with you, Dr. Leeds, it really is, then in that instance, we collaborate with their psychiatrist or their prescriber, whoever that is, to slowly start to taper off as they start to feel better and better with the ketamine. Uh, we've actually been very successful uh, reaching patients' goals who do want to get off the medications because a lot of times, uh, especially younger patients, find some of the side effects to be incompatible with, with young life. Um, you know, a lot of uh, young patients complain about um, uh, sexual dysfunction, you know, lack of interest in, in sexuality, which for a young person is very disconcerting. And so if that's their goal, if the goal of the patient is to get off their medications, which oftentimes it is, we will work with them and their prescriber to slowly uh, taper them off. So, um, so, but to your point, uh, and I'm glad you raised this, you know, sometimes people get excited to try um, something new. And as they get they start to feel better and better with the infusions. Um, you know, I worry that sometimes patients try to self, you know, they go on Dr. Google and they figure out, okay, this is the good way to the, the Dr. Google says I should do it. So I always caution patients against doing, um, doing that because to your point, patients who've been on these medications for a long time, it's, it is actually, some are actually unsafe uh, to come off of um, rapidly. Uh, causing seizures, things like that. So um, I do think it's important to collaborate and get the patients off slowly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I it, it seems like any kind of medication that gets into the brain at all, any kind of, you know, the benzodiazepines, the antipsychotics, antidepressants, uh, even the opioids, anything that gets in uh, alcohol, like whatever gets into the brain, uh, taking it away suddenly after someone's been taking it for at least more than a few weeks or for a long time, um, is traumatic to the brain and, and, and possibly damaging long-term. And so, yeah, tapers have to be done, you know, reducing medication should be done very carefully and gradually. Yes. Agree a hundred percent. Yeah. And then for the substance use disorder patients, um, I mean, we would like them to start ketamine therapy once they're clean and sober, if you will. Um, but you know, that doesn't always happen, especially with, uh, with cannabis. Uh, we're finding, I don't know what your your thoughts are on this, but we're finding more and more that um, patients who are addicted to cannabis are, are probably one of the most intractable addictions uh, that we're facing now. Uh, it's very difficult and it's, um, it's mostly a psychological addiction, uh, much more than a physical one like the benzos or opioids. Uh, and, and we're finding that that's a real challenge for patients to not do any cannabis while they're going through their ketamine therapy. And we try to reinforce it. Uh, but I think that's a difficult one for patients as well. Yeah. Have you seen any success with, uh, with stimulant addiction, like methamphetamine or cocaine? Um, I have not. I have not. I had one patient who uh, was addicted to meth um, and he um, stopped treatment short. So he came for two or three treatments uh, and he enjoyed the experience, uh, but did not allow for us to continue the protocol. He, he did not come back and, you know, on follow-up, he did not respond. Um, so I think, uh, I think that that was a tough one. Um, cocaine, I have not seen. Uh, yeah. We have not seen anyone. Yeah. It, it seems like whether it's, you know, addiction where a person is suffering from cravings or, uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, 
um, or even, you know, severe chronic pain, it seems like just the experience of, you know, and, and I'm not sure I've never done it before, but maybe the dissociative effect of, you know, your brain and, you know, your some part of your brain's diso disassociating from other parts of your brain, it seems like that would give you like temporary relief, you know, that maybe the pain is there and you're aware of it, but maybe it's not bothering you like how it usually does, like at least yeah. for the time. Yeah, I agree. And I think if the patient has a good therapist that is um, SUD, that's substance use disorder informed, I think they can really help the patient incorporate that feeling that they get in the ketamine experience, you know, later on with how do I incorporate that? Hey, my brain can work in this new and different way. And I can think in this new and different way and maybe think about my addiction in a new and different way. So I think I think it it is an opportunity for sure. Um, uh, and, and I do know that patients, at least we, who we've treated, um, quite a few for alcohol, uh, misuse, um, and they definitely have reported, a, a, a pretty great significant reduction, uh, in their cravings. So there oh, was, yeah, yeah, there's a, a protocol for that, right? K care, the care protocol. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is just ketamine infusion or ketamine treatment plus therapy. Yes, um, exactly. And yeah, and they have like like a really. I guess the the big deal is that the relapse rate goes way down with that. Yes, it it does, and you know we um uh, in our clinic again we really do encourage some vitamin su supplementation to really increase that um, resiliency in the new neurons, just because alcohol is so damaging uh, to the yeah. brain and to the neurons and to cardiac cells and the rest of our bodies because um, the body doesn't recognize it and it overwhelms our um, metabolic system, if you will. So we don't metabolize it like we do other drugs. Um, so yeah, that that's an interesting uh, model, but definitely combining ketamine with therapy uh, is kind yeah. of a part of that. Yeah. With the, uh, the patients who have benzodiazepine dependence, you know, whether, whether they're trying to taper very gradually off of the benzos or they, maybe they were encouraged to quit cold turkey or very quickly inappropriately. And now they have protracted withdrawal and, and some even develop akathisia and those patients are really suffering and looking for for answers and um ketamine seems like it should help and although what i've heard in, personally from like from individuals you know they they usually say well it didn't help me i went for one session and and didn't do anything for me so um and you know i think it seems like you really need to keep follow through and do multiple sessions to really see the benefits and um although patients with benzodiazepine withdrawal, they, they can be very sensitive to almost anything. Like medications that, that would should not cause a, a bad reaction, you know, will, you know, they're just really sensitive. Even the tiniest bit of something that, you know, you would never think would affect someone can give them a really bad reaction. So, you know, we have to be careful with them. But it just seems like, you know, based on how ketamine works, it really should help them to to feel better. Um, but have you seen any of that, like the benzo tapering or protracted withdrawal patients? Yeah, absolutely. We've had quite a few of those um, patients who are uh, either themselves wanting to get off the benzodiazepines or their um, psychiatrist or mental health nurse practitioner is like, okay, we need to get you off. You've been on this for a long time. Um, and uh, I have to tell you, I agree with you 100%. They're a little bit more challenging because um, the ketamine experience can be um uh, you know, it, although it can be pleasant for most people, I think patients who are used to benzodiazepines and kind of that numbing effect of it, I think they're a lot more, um, you know, sensitive. They're a lot more sensitized, if you will, to the effect, the dissociative effect of the ketamine. And it can get a little scary, you know, and there is this term on, um, uh, on Google, you know, that people refer to, you know, oh my God, I, I'm worried about going in a K-hole. And I always tell patients, you know, don't, th there is no such thing as a K-hole. It's a K-home. It's your polio brain. It's where your brain started way, way, way back billions of years ago. And you're just going there. That's it. It's your home. It's your paleo brain. Nothing to be scared of. It is just another part of you. So those patients in particular could really benefit from a few therapy sessions with a ketamine-informed therapist that can really help them set intention, set expectations, let them know what, what to expect, 
uh, and then maybe even be present with, you know, during the first couple of ketamine journeys so that the patient, to your point, that's so sensitive, uh, can get through it. And then after that, they actually do very well. Um, and, and, but on the back end, it does take a little bit more to get them to that maintenance phase and then off. Um, so uh, they are challenging. I think every patient whose brain is used to um, benzos, opioids, um, alcohol, and some of the other substances you've mentioned, I think they, they do pose a challenge, uh, but we're up for that challenge, aren't we? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So now the way ketamine works, um, and, and I, I know a little, but not maybe not not all of it. So, um, and, and it's very interesting. Uh, it it does something with the NMDA receptor, which um, interestingly, I, I remember there was a medication that that it was new, and I I never really heard much about it after um, it came. It was for um, uh, Alzheimer's dementia. It was to slow down the decline, and it, it was called it was Namenda, and Namenda uh-huh. worked on the NMDA receptor, and um, which I think it put it in the same category. There's like that Robitussin, the, the stuff in Robitussin does the same thing, and uh, PCP does the same thing. These things are all kind of in the same family of working on that receptor and doing something. I'm not sure if it if it blocks or activates, if it's an agonist, antagonist. And and then once it does something with that NMDA receptor, something happens with the neurotransmitters glutamate and, and GABA. I'm not sure if it increases one, decreases the other. Like, Can you talk a little bit about like what happens at the receptor level? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the way that ketamine actually works is it it is an antagonist at the NMDA receptor. So it actually blocks glutamate from interacting with its regular receptor, which is NMDA. But what that does, and actually ketamine is also an um, ionoporic, uh, so it actually causes increase in calcium uh, entering the cell. So it does both. It's kind of an interesting, it's a very elegant drug actually in that regard. Um, But then it also, and that kind of sets off that whole sympathetic nervous system, if you will, you know, increasing calcium uh, intercellularly. Uh, But as far as the NMDA, it blocks the NMDA receptor um, from interacting with with glutamate. So what it does is there is a preponderance for glutamate to kind of build up and uh, almost get shuttled to the AMPA receptors in the pyramidal cells of the brain. And that's actually where we see the activity of ketamine in its antidepressant effects. So the way I used to describe it to the medical students is, uh, you know, we have a couple of major roads here in, in the D.C. area. But wherever you are, I'm sure there are a couple of parallel um, main roads. Right. So let's say you're driving down uh, one of your main highways uh, where you are and there is a car accident. So the cars can no longer go down that road. So what happens is, and that's ketamine, it's blocking glutamate from interacting. So all the cars, instead of going down this route now, have to get get over, uh, usually for us using Waze or or Google. Uh, But basically in the brain, the glutamate finds itself interacting more with the AMPA receptors where it actually increases the cell's machinery to kind of lock in and increase um, protein synthesis and eventually those dendrites that we've been talking about. So that's the main mechanism of action of ketamine uh, when it comes to its antidepressant effects. And I think that was demonstrated uh, in animal models in a 2019 study that was published uh, in science, Nature Science, uh, which basically demonstrated, um, you know, they um, stressed out uh, mice Uh, I think it's a rodent model. I don't recall whether it was mice or rats, but regardless, it was a rodent model. And that's actually how we we manifest depression and anxiety in animal models. We we cause chronic stress. And so those animals were shown that they're, um, then they they exposed some to saline and some to ketamine. And what they found was that chronic stress caused um, the neurons to shrink. Um, and some of those dendrites to shrink back and um, the spines to, to actually disappear. And then after exposure to ketamine, they, we saw new growth in those areas. And we believe that's happening because of the AMPA receptor reacting with glutamate. Oh, that's really, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and what was, is GABA involved in there? I might be mixing it up with a whole different thing. Like somehow there's like a balance of glutamate and GABA that they're connected somehow. 
Yeah. So, you know, and, and this is kind of all of us in nature, uh, you know, there is a, wherever there is an action, there is a reaction in Chinese medicine, it's yin and yang. And in our brain, it's glutamate GABA. And so at the same time that um, glutamate is interacting, uh, ketamine is causing this interaction of glutamate. It also does cause downstream effect on the GABA receptors. And that's where we see that um, it does actually over time help with anxiety as well. And so that, that makes good sense. And then actually in the, in the descending pathways of the central nervous system, both in the spinal cord and in the brain, it also interacts with opioid receptors uh, in a very non-addictive sense. So um, ketamine is, again, a pretty elegant drug interacting with multiple receptors uh, presynaptically and postsynaptically as well. Yeah. And, and as far as I've also read that it, it has anti-inflammatory effects like that. I don't know. Is that just in the brain or the whole nervous system or the entire body? Uh, you know, there is some it's very interesting with ketamine. There are some studies that have shown that it's neurotoxic and there are some studies that have shown that it's neuroprotective that it does have some anti-inflammatory effect. So in our clinic, we actually did a research study where we um, provided IV ketamine, uh, our usual standard protocol of six. Um, and then we also, um, at the end for some patients, it was a double blind. So I didn't know, neither did any of the providers. So we did either ketamine with saline or ketamine with glutathione, which is an anti-inflammatory. Um, we didn't find any difference in either group. And what we were going to do is, okay, if we found a difference, the next study we were going to do would be to draw, um, you know, uh, some uh, blood, some plasma, and test it for some of the anti-inflammatory um, um, uh, substances. And um, because we didn't have it, we had a positive effect. Everyone, everyone responded to ketamine. So that's the good news. We had significant difference uh, from day one to day 28. So we stopped even 14 days after we stopped the ketamine infusions, patients still did well, but there was no intergroup difference. Um, so in our own clinic, we are not, we weren't able to demonstrate a, a um, synergistic anti-inflammatory effect. Uh, so I think it's a little bit more complicated, Dr. Leeds, when it comes to uh, inflammation, whether it's an anti-inflammatory or a pro-inflammatory um, in our clinic, we use it a lot for pain management, but I, my assumption always is that we're affecting um, those kind of common pathways, if you will, that we've discussed at the beginning of our podcast, uh, but also maybe more on the opioid side versus the anti-inflammatory side. But I'm not, yeah. I'm not positive on that. Okay. Yeah. It, it, and I mean, we should say that a lot of this is probably, you know, speculative. I mean, we can't, it, it's not that easy to look at a you know, at these receptors in the brain and say, you know, look at, you know, I mean, you're not actually watching these things interacting on a microscope and saying, look, it hit that receptor and it didn't go to that one. I mean, these, it's not easy to study these things. I mean, it's easy for, for us to talk about and say like, oh, look, it blocks that one and activates that one. But to to discover how all this stuff works, you know, must be very difficult to to come to these conclusions. And then even then it, it's speculative to some some degree. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know this better than I do. You know, every patient is so different. Um, you know, every brain, I always tell patients, you know, your brain, just like we all have different fingerprints, every individual has an individual fingerprint. I believe the brain to be the same because there is no way, even twins, there is no way you and another human being have the exact same experiences, the exact same sensory inputs at the exact same times. And so given that all of our brains are different, um, it does make it very complicated. It does make it so complicated and not, and no two uh, trauma patients or, um, you know, uh, depressed patients or anxiety patients, no two brains are identical. And so, you know, that's why it's so individual and, and our treatments have to be almost, it almost pushes us as providers to really try to look at um, every patient as an individual and and plan something different for each of those individuals. Um, and to your point at the cellular level, um, you know, we we understand we are we are practicing based on evidence, uh, but is the evidence perfect 100%? Do we know this to be 100% true and, and in fact, true um, uh, the reality of it? 
um, you know, we, we can't say with 100% certainty, right? And it's very difficult to translate animal models to human models, again, because of that reason, you know, I've done clinical research, and I've done animal research. And you know, those rats are bred for research, they're all identical. Um, whereas humans <laughs> are anything yeah. but so it, it does it does pose a challenge, uh, but uh, exciting, you know, that's what makes our yeah. practices so so fascinating. Yeah, and and that's that's what makes one you know with ketamine. It's so interesting that as you treat people, you can observe additional benefits along the way. You can say like, well, this patient came in for this reason, but they have these other problems, and they've reported back that they had improvement of something else, and now we may have discovered a possible new use for it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, now, one thing I, I promised I would ask about this, um, you know, nootropic supplements and drugs, you know, nootropic meaning like like um, a drug or a supplement that makes someone's brain function better, you know, maybe it helps them to focus or calm down or or think more clearly. And, um, you know, it's kind of a difficult thing because, you know, like our, our brains are like probably, you know, we have, well, I don't know if you, I guess a brain is like, like, like muscles, you can build muscles up to a certain degree, uh, you know, within certain limitations. Um, but could you possibly call ketamine a nootropic drug or like, what if someone came in and said, I'm, I'm pretty much doing fine. I don't really feel depressed or anxious or OCD, PTSD, all these different things. I no pain or whatever. Like I feel fine, but I want, I want to think better. I want to like do better at my job. Like maybe they're a programmer or, you know, something that takes a lot of, you know, mental focus um, or an author. Uh, it Can ketamine, is ketamine a nootropic drug or like, would that not be a good idea to think of it that way? Um, you know, we don't utilize it that way. I don't know, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, I'm not going to sit in judgment of whether that's a good way of think thinking about this amazing drug that we have or not. Um, I tell you, that's not how we utilize it at our, at our clinic. We, um, yeah. you know, for our patients do have to have a diagnosis before we will do uh, ketamine therapy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if someone is really looking to increase, um, you know, brain growth, they can do, um, you know, there are some infusions that are very helpful or people um, think are helpful, like some of the ATP, um, you know, promoting uh, medications like NAD. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so some of acetylcysteine. So I think some of those uh, amino acids might be a little bit more useful, not be a controlled substance, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's that side of it out. And then, you know, something that really um, is very, and we know this from, from uh, physiologists who've done um, exercise physiology, that if you push your brain to an uncomfortable place with exercise, whether it's the, um, you know, the Japanese uh, Tabata method, or if it's a HIIT exercise or something like that, you do release mTOR which is what rapamycin and some of these other medications uh, are trying to do. And by doing that, you actually increase synapses in the brain as well. So I think if someone were to come to me and say, hey, I wanna have better focus, um, use my brain differently, I would probably recommend something like that, like a NAD infusion and intense exercise, uh, probably four to five days a week, um, a short, short spurt uh, versus trying something like ketamine. Um, you know, do I, would I be uh, entirely against it? Absolutely not. Because to our points that we've talked about today, you know, every individual brain is different and there might be someone out there or many someone's out there that would benefit from the, um, neuroplastic effects of ketamine, uh, someone who has a, um, doesn't have any diagnosis. Um, but I don't, I don't, I wouldn't prescribe for that. You know what I mean? I just yeah. would, there's, there are other things, you know, as a physiologist, Drugs aren't my first go-to. Your own yeah. body are my first go-to. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. People really, you know, in the field of nootropics, I mean, there are things that are non-controlled that you can get over the counter, like 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 we said, the fish oil. There's a nootropic. Yeah. Um, you know, and so you know, there's definitely things that are safe and readily available. Um, but yeah, prescription drugs and definitely controlled drugs. Uh, you, you know, even in a clinical setting, we really shouldn't think of them as being used for treating people that don't have a diagnosis that, that would require the use of them. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, um, I think that's what makes us licensed providers, right? There is that kind of safety, that, that line that we don't really, we don't really necessarily cross now, you know, if, um, 
if there are people out there that that recommended maybe they've had different experiences yeah so maybe they've seen it work in several patients maybe they've um, they have a, a a cohort of athletes that they've worked with and they really believe that it works for these the this group um you know I'm not negating it but that's not that that wouldn't be the first thing I would go to yeah well it is good to know that there are alternatives if someone is just looking for that brain growth um effect that there's you know they don't have to you know ketamine is not not the like you said not the first thing to go to there's a, a variety of other options that can do the same thing probably just as well or, or adequately for those patients or people. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so uh, oh, one one last thing, I don't want to take up too much more time, but um, uh, we had talked about, or we had discussed um, Lyme disease. And I think that's one of your, um, I don't know if it's your most recent, but you have a prominent blog post on your website about Lyme disease. And that's really interesting. I, I Lyme disease is not something I've thought about a lot. I mean, it's not like a major problem in our area. Um, I, I know in some areas it is, you know, maybe where you are, maybe there's more deer and woods and deer ticks. Um, but uh, I know that's a, in some areas, it's a major issue and it, it's often underdiagnosed. And then even when a person gets treatment, they they may continue to have uh, joint or muscle pain, fatigue and, and some vague symptoms and maybe symptoms that might even be misdiagnosed as something else. Um, you know, and, and then I started looking up like different conditions, like what what's kind of like uh, protracted chronic Lyme disease uh, syndrome or whatever you would call it. And, you know, you find things like Epstein-Barr virus and fibromyalgia and, um, you know, ju just other conditions that might fall into that category of like, you know, doctors might say like, oh, you don't have anything, you're fine. We already gave you antibiotics for the Lyme disease. You know, you're you're imagining it, you know, and, and like some of these other conditions, you know, people have real symptoms and real pain. Um, but yeah, can you talk a little bit about like how ketamine can help someone with chronic Lyme disease uh, symptoms? Yeah, so you know, um, we have used uh, ketamine really successfully uh, in quite a few Lyme patients who have chronic chronic Lyme, if you will. So to us, it almost seems like uh, there is Lyme disease, and then there's a lot of co-infections with the Lyme disease that are um, that attack the, the nervous system. And so, you know, patients end up with really bad headaches or uh, they end up with joint pains chronically. And so what we found is that combining ketamine uh, with something like magnesium that really kind of takes down that, that central nervous system, kind of calms it down uh, together with a disruptor like lidocaine so that we're disrupting the pain pathways from firing. And then combining all of that with an anti-inflammatory, like a high dose vitamin C that they're using in the ICU now, uh, that we're having really good success treating patients for their pain, but also maybe trying to address a little bit of that inflammation that's the underlying cause of what's happening. So even if the Lyme disease itself is resolved, they might have some co-infections that are causing some longer standing um, inflammation uh, as well as central nervous system misfiring, you know, with the chronic pain. So we do uh, some of these combination therapies, if you will. And then, you know, it's very interesting that you raise the anti-inflammatory effects of ketamine. In, in hopes with, with Lyme's patients, we also hope that there is some of that happening as well, although we don't know uh, with, with uh, certainty that we're hopefully causing effect, not just as at disrupting the pain pathways, but combining ketamine with a uh, glutathione or a vitamin C to cause some anti-inflammatory effects as well. So those are some of the combination therapies that we do. Yeah. Now, now you mentioned, um, I think, you know, I think you mentioned acupuncture and Asian medicine. Um, is, is there, I, I don't know if that, if that involved in that is uh, like these, energy pathways or, or the flow of energy and, and the, um, oh, what do you, what do you call it? What do you call those centers in the, like in your head and different? The meridian. Um, yeah. Meridian. But isn't there, there's another thing like these energy centers in the body, the, uh, oh, chakras. Chakras. Yeah. That's uh, Ayurvedic medicine. Okay. So chakras is not like, you know, that's not the same thing. That's like more, um, maybe more alternative and outside of the, you know, like you wouldn't treat chakras, but you might, but what is a meridian? Um, so, you know, in Chinese medicine, they believe that, uh, or we believe that your um, 
your deep organs send their energies or their chi, which is the life force, uh, spelled C-H-I, chi, um, that your life force or energy from the organs is transmitted more to the surface of your body um, so that we can diagnose and treat a lot of your illnesses by tapping into your own organs energies. And so those energies all have pathways that bring the, the uh, energy forward from your own organ, and those are meridians. So every single organ system in Chinese medicine um, has its own meridian. So you have, for example, the heart meridian, the lung meridian, uh, the kidney meridian. And so those energies we can tap into by inserting needles um, into that meridian. And every meridian has a few points that are the strong points. There are over 360 points on the human body, but every acupuncturist will probably tap into about 70. Uh, and so each of those meridians have some, some master points um, that are used more universally. And those apparently are the more potent points um, that we can tap into those energies. Um, so um, that that's basically kind of the, the theory of um, these energy fields that bring information to the surface so that we can tap into it. Well, it, it sounds similar to uh, osteopathic medicine where, you know, we talk about like the spinal levels that correspond to different organs. Like I think it's a T5, maybe on the left that corresponds to the stomach and each organ has like a different place on on, you know, on the outside that, that it connects to that organ where you can treat that spinal level. Yes, that's, that's, it's very similar. It's very similar. Yes. Okay. Is that beneficial to, to do those kind of treatments like during a ketamine treatment, or would you not want to mess with acupuncture and ketamine at the same time? You know, it's interesting you raised that. I've often wondered if it wouldn't be really cool to do like, you know, the master points, there are four, you know, the four gates, as we call them, there's a point on your, between your thumb and your index finger called um, large intestine four, which is one of the more, more potent points. And there is a point uh, on your on your feet, on the surface of your feet between your large toe and your index toe, if you will, your second toe, um, that is also a, um, a master point. So, you know, some, and we call, when you insert needles into the four, you know, simultaneously, that's referred to as the four gates. It supposedly opens up your whole energy field and makes you more, um, it kind of really causes the flow of chi in your body and really helps uh, to move the energetics along, if you will. So I've often wondered if for people who are really stuck and for whom ketamine is working, but it's not working as, as rapidly or as, as much as they'd like, I've often wondered if it wouldn't be really cool to do the four points and then start an acupuncture treatment. I haven't done it, uh, but I'm wondering if that wouldn't be so cool to combine and then maybe do a study on that. I think yeah. it would be fascinating. Yeah, that that would really be incredible. It's, I, I, I think that's always interesting, the idea of like taking two things that are not going to interact in a negative way and, and seeing how if they can synergistically help each other. Yeah, absolutely. Because even just putting needles in those four points, a lot of people, you know, without any mind altering drugs, feel that, um, you know, they they feel like an openness, like a release almost. And uh, that's why I wonder if doing the four points, you know, the four gates, uh, as they're called, and ketamine together might be uh, like a, a really cool exercise. I yeah, don't know. Okay. Maybe, maybe a patient will volunteer to, to do that with me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they should. Yeah, you know that. And I would definitely be interested to learn more about that and talk about that on a podcast. You know, when you've done that study or you have some experience trying it out. Yeah, um, maybe I should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and there's probably probably not that many ketamine specialists out there who are also specialists in acupuncture. So uh, you are probably in a unique position to do that study. Yeah, it would be very cool, honestly, to combine. And and I've thought about combining um, the two, especially for our pain patients. Uh, but I haven't done it bec only because, um, A, it's difficult to, you know, do ketamine therapy, IV therapy, and insert needles and all of that, just logistically, it's difficult. But, you know, in our recliners that we use for the IV, we could certainly try the the four points and, and see what we get. 
Uh, it would have to be in a in a special patient that's open to that, and you know, yeah. patients are already needle phobic enough <laughs> at the IV. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, but those are like tiny, tiny needles, right? They're like oh, yeah. you don't even really feel them mostly. I think no, they're thirty four, usually thirty four gauge, uh, and they're non hollow, unlike our our uh, um, uh, Western medicine needles that are hollow bore intended to draw blood or or insert um, medications into blood. Uh, they're actually solid. They're not hollow bore, so they don't cause bleeding or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great. Um, so, uh, Dr. Ladon Eshkaveri, uh, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a really uh, enlightening and incredible interview and discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Leeds, and thank you for your time.